Welcome to Globally Speaking, a production by RWS Moravia. Globally Speaking is designed to educate, inform, and challenge everyone who is engaged in global communications. Our experts talk to various industry thought leaders to dig into the most critical issues impacting language and localization today. Learn more by visiting our website at www.globallyspeakingradio.com. Now, here is the host for this episode. Hi, I'm Jim Compton, the Manager of Technology Partnerships at RWS Moravia. Today, I'm thrilled to be talking with Andy Anderson, who works on international growth at the dating platform company, Tinder. Today, we're going to be talking about how a company like Tinder approaches localization and more broadly about the phenomena of online dating in the context of globalization. Andy, great to meet you. Maybe you could introduce yourself. Yeah, of course. Thanks first for having me on the podcast. It's great to be with you all. Yeah, so as Jim mentioned, my name is Andy Anderson. I work in international growth. I help companies to to go international and to expand in their new markets and to to build out their foundations and, and global platforms. My current role is with Tinder. I've been working with Tinder for international growth for about four years now. As an app, we're in uh, 56 different languages spread out globally to millions of users around the world. And I also oversee our organic user acquisition for the app stores, which encompasses seven stores, I believe now, across about 70 customized localizations. And you know, for that, the team is, is pretty active and pretty busy, needless to say, keeping up with the trends. And this year has been quite interesting, just to say the least. Can you tell us a little bit about what has made this year interesting? Yeah, sure. I think the whole reaction of just the pandemic has been crazy for, for everyone. There was kind of a lull in some of the markets where the pandemic first hit the hardest, specifically, I think some of the European countries, maybe like Italy or areas like that, where there was an initial impact. And then over time, you kind of saw this trend happening around the world. And then there was probably this leveling off stage where the markets had kind of reached this, but then there became this online surge, which we've seen not just in our apps, but I think you've seen this across the industry with streaming applications and with video chats and with Zooms and all these other things where people, once they were at home and then became somewhat bored, I guess, or, or maybe just looking for distractions or something, people really turned to online platforms and applications to connect digitally, even though they weren't meeting up in person, they couldn't go to the bars, they couldn't go to the restaurants, they couldn't go to festivals, all that kind of stuff. People started to really interact and engage online. And we've seen that with the explosion of so many different things this year in terms of you know, the social space has been, I think... Maybe forever change, maybe permanently, maybe it's temporary. We don't know if we fully understand that yet, but there's been a lot of potential industry changes this year. So I understand that you basically created the localization program for Tinder. Is that right? Yeah, for the most part. I mean, when I came in, there were some things already in play. There were some languages that had already been localized into like a handful of languages. And we'd scaled that up just a few months before I got here. What really wasn't in place when I got was processes and procedures and structure to help scale, I think, in terms of like, you know, how do you handle multiple assignments a day? How do you keep the team moving? How do you keep turnaround times and efficiencies in terms of workflows, things like that? A lot of those things weren't necessarily there. You know, like I think there's this phase with a lot of earlier companies and and Tinder wasn't specifically a startup when I started there. You know, it was starting to get to a more mature company phase. However, it still acted like one in a lot of ways. And I think what you see in earlier companies is there's always this initial, okay, I know we need localizations or I know we need translations and then they do it. And then they're like, 
oh, actually, this needs to be a managed managed part of our product. This needs to be something that's that's actively you know engaged with and stuff, not just a, a side thing. And then whenever you get to that point, you really have to start thinking about organization and how this fits into the structure and shared responsibilities across the organization. So it sounds like when you came in, you were looking at sort of maturing the program, making it more part of the product and scalable. Maybe you can tell us a bit about what were some of the things you did to support that idea of maturity and scalability with the localization program? Yeah, I think there are a number of ways to think about it. You have to, first of all, take in like the current state of things. You have to take in the current state of affairs, if you will, and see where localization is. Are there tools in place? Are there procedures in place? You know, how do people request translation assignments or how do people partner with the team for for rollouts and and, in the product? You have to take in a lot of those considerations. So you have to first start with facts and, and kind of gather that information. And then I think the next step is to look for improvements and efficiencies. Like if something's taking a lot longer than it should, you know, something's taking two weeks when it should really be only taking one week. That could be a number of things. It could be the vendors. It could be expectations. It could be a lack of, of documentation in terms of the way things need to go. So next is kind of outlining that plan about, you know, making sure that vendors are aligned with the mission, making sure that the different stakeholders across the company understand what is entailed in work. And it's not just the machine translation. It's, it's actually more involved than that. And teams actually need to be actively engaged. So really kind of outlining and, and putting their structure into place. Some of that's documentation, writing out things, writing out this is how things work, talking to people, all that kind of stuff. All that's entailed. And then I think the the third component that's probably overlooked to an extent is what I like to call and some others in the industry like to call evangelization in terms of you know getting champions and, and really getting people excited about international growth and languages and localizations and all that kind of stuff. Because for better, for worse, not everyone is excited about that. Uh, some people really love that. And they're like, oh, that's super cool that the product is in you know this language or something like that. Or maybe you have a native speaker in the company and they come to you and say, oh, this is really fun. I've just used the app in this language and it's really cool now or something like that. But there are also for every person like that, there's probably a few people at the company who are not super excited about that or don't really care or maybe just indifferent, if you will. And so there are a number of things that need to be done to get people excited. You know, you need to have talks across the company and talk to different organizations and get them excited about their part of the process and not just giving them a list of things that they have to do, but also saying like, you really have to sell the why. You have to sell the, you know, why are we doing this? What's the what's the benefit to you? Why should you help me? Or why should we work together on this? And you have to sell those things. And that could come from just the talks that could come from, you know, looking for the, they, sometimes people call them cheerleaders or the or the people who really champion the work that international is doing. So you came into this existing landscape. You saw there was room for improvement. It sounds like part of what your strategy was, was internal evangelization, right? To get the actual product team to maybe make changes in the name of global growth. I would like to talk about online dating and specifically about globalization. How, from your view, has globalization impacted the practice of dating around the world? Yes, dating is a super interesting space because dating is not dating as we think about it globally. That's the first thing. I think you have to think about some of these ancient, shall we call them traditions or ways of life that still are remnant in many parts of the world. And so in some parts of the world, dating is somewhat of a foreign concept. 
You can think about some of the more conservative areas of the world where there might be religious limitations or just cultural limitations where there's a lot of family involvement. You know, sometimes you see that in the Middle East. You would see that in parts of, you know, Southeast Asia, like maybe like India, those areas. And then those kind of concepts that make dating a bit of a foreign concept, like meeting up with with someone just for the sake of getting to know them or potentially turning into a romantic relationship. Those are things that are not consistent around the world, which makes it interesting. But at the same time, globalization has started to impact and make meeting people easier than ever before. There is a book that talks a little bit about modern, well, a lot, a lot about modern dating, actually. It's by a comedian, actually, Aziz Ansari. You may have, you may have read it, but it's called Modern Romance. There's some interesting concepts around this idea that, you know, back in the previous days of dating, like if you go back pre-smartphone, pre-internet, really, maybe let's go back 100 years, you really would date people that you knew or that one of your friends might have known. Like it would have been an introduction by like maybe first or second degree introduction, right? It would have been like either immediate family introduction or maybe a friend of a friend or something like that. And a lot of times it would be from the same neighborhood maybe even from the same building, if you were from a big city like New York or something, you would see this thing, it's mentioned in the book, is this like this kind of choice situation where you'd perceive that you only had a few options. And it wasn't just in selecting a partner or something, it was also in life in general, like jobs and other things. And you seemed like your options were somewhat limited. With the advancement of the internet and the advancement of ultimately smartphones and apps, there's this new concept where you can meet people in a range of a certain amount of miles or distance or kilometers or wherever you live in the world. And it could be that it could, you could change your location and meet people. You could have a pin pal, you could have a, you know, a video call with someone on the other side of the planet instantly. And you could have absolutely no previously existing connections with this person whatsoever. And that I think has in many ways transformed this idea of the other and the stranger in a good way, I think is that, people have started to engage with people that they might not have engaged with before because they were outside of their social circles. And that can go, that can transcend into demographics, socioeconomics, into ethnicities, you know, religions. You know, I mean, you think about in the context of, I don't know, a border or something, and you have a distance around a border and you can, you can meet someone on the other side of a border, but you would normally not go to that, that country or that state or whatever the situation is. And now you can meet those people. And I think that, conversation in a lot of ways is starting to open up this dialogue across the world that enables people to speak more openly with one another and to get to know each other and to reduce these kind of walls, proverbial walls that we have with each other about cultural differences and, and things like that, which I personally think is, is, a, is a good thing. And I think being able to like connect with people like, like never before, I think it has opened people up to an extent. You've seen new trends emerging around the world where certain countries, certain markets, people are starting to be introduced to this idea of dating online and actually choosing a partner for themselves rather than having a parent or a you know, family member introduce them and say, this is someone that I think you should meet. They're doing that on their own and able to, to really do that. And, and it's not just with apps like Tinder. You've also seen apps specifically for communities like you've seen like Muslim dating apps or Jewish dating apps or other things like farmers dating apps or these kind of things, which enables people to even date within a community that may or may not have dated before within you know itself. And that might not be crossing like, you know, borders or crossing cultural things. However, it's still opening the option pool a little bit for people who previously didn't have those 
at least in their mind, maybe they did or maybe they didn't, but at least as far as their limitations, they didn't really feel like they had the option to to branch out. So I think it's been pretty transformative and it's been really, really interesting. And it's really only been, we're talking about about eight years now, eight or 10 years, because Tinder has only been out for about eight years as an app. But then before that, there was Match and there were eHarmony and there were some of these other sites that have been out, I believe, since about early 2000s. Totally. It sounds like the online dating part has the power to change the culture of some of these places. Do you notice any change in the way that these markets have been using Tinder? Yeah, I think uh, I wouldn't say it's just specific to Tinder, but I think that you've seen, I guess we can use the word aperture, like for markets, like for for regions and cultures that traditionally haven't dated, as I was mentioning earlier about, you know, whether it's a religious reason or it's a cultural limitation or, or just some form of tradition, I think you've seen more and more aperture in those markets. And you've seen it by not just the success of Tinder, but you've also seen it in the success of other brands and maybe even local brands to an extent. If you look at like India or the Middle East or some parts of Southeast Asia, a lot of these areas weren't necessarily uh, traditional like dating markets as we think about them in the West. And you you would look at now how there are a lot of local apps there. You have uh, Muslim dating apps, you have Jewish dating apps, you have dating apps specifically for India. You have dating apps that have emerged for Southeast Asia. And so that to me is showing that there is an appetite also for that change because those people are pursuing those those businesses. And, it's, and for the global companies like Tinder or or some of the other players out in the world that would be you know, considered a, as a global uh, app in the same space, you've seen that they've also had positive trajectories in those markets. And they've also focused, I think, uh, attention in, in a lot of those markets just because there's been more and more interest by local areas. And I think that's one of the things when people make decisions at a startup phase or at a, at a, a business going global, I think you make a lot of considerations like that. And a lot of times you would overlook markets where you think you didn't have any opportunity or any potential in those markets because of either some form of obstacle, some form of limitation that would be a barrier to entry to your business in that market. But now you're seeing a lot of that is no longer relevant because companies are investing there. Companies are spending time there. So I think we're we're seeing that happen right now. And I think it's only going to be more in the next few years. I think it's just going to continue uh, as a trend. Has the Tinder app itself specifically changed in the context of this new global opportunity to connect markets that might not otherwise be engaged in online dating? Uh, Has the app itself evolved as this globalization opportunity started to become more apparent? The thing about Tinder that you see is that Tinder, there's a lot of core functionalities that most people would recognize You know, from the early days of Tinder. If anyone was an early Tinder user from 2012, 2013, some of that core functionality that people love hasn't really changed in the app. You know, it's ease of use, it's quick start, you know, you can download it and, and be swiping within, you know, a matter of minutes. And, you know, all that is still pretty native to Tinder. However, you have seen a lot of changes over over time. And some of that has been adapting to the current state of things. You know, there's been video chat and there's been things like that introduced this year. But then in terms of like local dating, I wouldn't say that the app is like really extremely customized on a market by market level. I think that's that's a that's a bit of a feat from an engineering and product perspective to have that level of, of customization. I'm not really sure if any app does that to be honest, but I do think that there are always considerations made about what could be relevant and what could be useful on a market by market space and making decisions kind of more at a macro stage, like saying, 
you know, what is a feature that could be relevant in solving problems in a specific area or in a specific country, but could also be relevant at a bigger scale, like, you know, in thinking about multi-markets or thinking about other areas. And we've also done some fun things that were not necessarily, as you might think, dating related, but it ended up being like, it was kind of a dabble into the content space, which a lot of people talked about, which was Swipe Night, which was a really interesting product that the team launched a couple of months ago globally. And that was like a content stream where people could make decisions inside of the app based off of a scenario situation. And then at the end of that, they could see what choices other people made and then potentially match with them and have a conversation about their choices or something. Can we get an example of like what would be some feature or you know way the product itself works where it would be working differently in one market versus another? You know, you solve for specific problems and, and specific markets. And I say problems, I don't necessarily mean like the app is broken or something. I just mean that Tinder launched a Tinder Lite variant a few years ago where, for example, users that didn't have the latest and greatest smartphones, had low bandwidths, had you know, lack of memory on their phones, could still use Tinder and download the app, but a light version of it. But it is something that is, you know, a customization that was made for people who couldn't access the app based off of where they were located or based off of, you know, some limiting factors. Other things that I can think of that may be interesting would just be that we do focus on, you know, what are some unique challenges? And, and this is what all companies focus on is like, what is a unique challenge in a market? And what is something that we can change in the product that can do that? And when you think about that in terms of the dating space, it could be limitations in terms of communication. It could be limitations in terms of context, in terms of being overwhelmed or making efficiencies inside of the product. Like, for example, how do you make things easier for people? How do you make things more streamlined for people who are just looking to start a chat instantly rather than having to swipe a bunch of times and then hope for a match? They can you know, send messages more rapidly to people or, or things like that. So I think you solve for those as they come up. And I think we've we've done a number of things in that regard. And you would you'd see that reflected in the products, you know, the, the features that have been launched somewhat this year, I think, in, in a lot of ways. Cool. So I know that there's a go global feature actually in Tinder. Can you tell us what that is all yeah, about? Yeah, I think the premise with that is essentially that you can match with people in other places rather than just where you are. So the go global or the global mode, I think is actually what it's called, but global mode can be used by anyone. But when you turn it on, it basically means that you can match with, with anyone around the world. So it kind of opens up the, the net of conversation. Um, and so for some people that would be really relevant and for other people they might not like that. So if you're in a city where you already have plenty of people to match with and plenty of people to potentially meet up with in person, like a New York and LA and in, in the United States or, you know, globally in another major city like London or something where you're, you're, you've got plenty of people to meet up with. You might not really care about that because you're not looking to chat with people, just, uh, you know, message back and forth with people like that. However, if you're in a smaller area where there might not be as many people to chat with, maybe you find interesting conversations with people in other areas because there's not enough people locally or something like that, which is kind of an interesting thing. So, it's not so much that you're going global as a user as it is that it's just kind of opening up the pool of of people to chat with, which is kind of interesting. But again, I don't know. It's probably person specific, whether that's interesting to them or not. Like, you know, I can say I find conversations interesting with people just in general in terms of, you know, if you think about just having a coffee with someone or whatever, I think that can be very interesting in terms of a, a platonic chat with someone about just whatever topics of interest you have. 
But some people aren't interested in that. Some people are just exclusively trying to date and looking for a partner and they, they're, they're all business. And so they want to meet someone locally. They want to meet someone in their neighborhood or in their city. And that's that. So I think it's one of those features that's really person specific. So I understand that you maybe have done some interesting things or have some ideas with regard to app store optimization, findability or search engine optimization. App Store optimization and SEO or search engine optimization, they both fit into what most of the industry would say is like user acquisition. So it's like, you know, acquiring new users. There's a couple of categories of that. You have new users and then you have usually like returning users, you know, people who are visiting again. SEO has been a topic that I've actually been involved with probably since, I don't know, 2000, early 2010-ish, maybe is probably as far back as, maybe even longer than that, really, because I remember when I was little just making you know, websites and stuff like that from WordPress or from these other things where you would make a, a page. And that probably even goes back to like, I'm dating myself a little bit here, but like the MySpace days and all that, when you would just do a little HTML code and and add these keywords or add that. And that was kind of all part of it. So I think I got involved in SEO for a while now, and it wasn't necessarily doing it professionally for that time period. But when I started Tinder and started to work on ASO, it was kind of a natural transition into that because there's a lot of overlap and it's kind of really fun to to customize that across the world because there's a lot of nuances in the stores. So in terms of ASO, just to break it down a little bit, you have two main stores. You have the Google Play Store and you have the App Store. And then there are a number of other stores around the world that have, have emerged in the, in the recent years. Most apps are not in those stores. And there are a lot of times like regionalized or single market or things like that. But the primary two stores that people focus on are the Play Store and the, and the App Store by Apple. In those they're very different. On a surface level, they seem similar, but the, the way that they actually work is quite different. There are a number of factors that contribute to traffic and conversion uh, for both of those stores. And a lot of them come down to visual and localized components to it. And if you think about the type of app, uh, it really gets down to the granularity of relevance for screenshots and for terminology that you're using and, and things like that. So if you think about traffic, it's it's trying to figure out which words you know, people use locally, what's the what's the slang, what's the word for this, the word for that, because it's not necessarily just translation, it's really using localization to find what's most relevant. And then on the conversion side, we would also often equate that to the visual components of the stores. And if you think about social apps, I mean you can look at any of our, our store listings, they're all public on on the on the Google browsers, but you would see that our screenshots and our things like that, they do change depending on, you know, market needs and things like that. And so you can see how that really relates to the cultural components. And you can see how localization really comes into play there because that becomes a lot deeper than just text. It's it's then at that point, also a matter of people, a matter of what they look like. Does it feel local to me? Does it seem relatable? Is it a relatable product to me? And I think that's something that a lot of companies should and could be doing in terms of their presence, uh, at least in the stores, is that they really need to be relatable to people. You know, if you're a person in XYZ country, when you see the app, if you don't know the brand, whatever brand it is, you want to be able to say, that looks like something that myself, my friends, my family would use. And let me download that because it looks relevant versus something that looks like a foreign product. And so I think those are like the interesting things and nuances about the ASO space, the abstract optimization space. And I think on the SEO side, it's interesting because SEO and ASO, they have a lot of overlap in some ways. SEO is a lot more broad. It's really just like 
the www the world wide web it's just like literally everywhere i mean you can publish content that's kind of the the concept of global from day one that you probably heard in the industry before is that when you publish when you press the publish button on the internet on a website or a blog or whatever that content is really global from day one i mean you can you can see it from antarctica you can see it from south korea from anywhere in the world like within minutes within seconds really and it can be shared it can be posted it can be whatever and so SEO is really interesting because it's another space that can be powerful for companies and it can be an impactful metric to to helping to grow things. But, you know, it really depends on the company and the focus. And I think all products are different. Each company and each product, each focus, they're all slightly different. I think the app space overlaps a lot with what I'm talking about. I think other spaces are somewhat different, but it, it completely depends on the the product and the focus of the company. But I do really enjoy those spaces a lot. And I really nerd out on on ASO stuff sometimes talking about people. I can get into a, a rabbit hole conversation about just like keyword optimization or this or that or whatever. And it sounds super nerdy and cheesy, but <laughs> it's kind of fun. No, it sounds awesome. <laughs> I love it. Again, it's not just in one market, right? It adds a, a different dimension of interest and complexity to try and do that and have it be equally findable or desirable like everywhere in the world. So no, I'm with you. If you were to put everything in place in a way that would best serve companies like Tinder with their globalization objectives, what would you ask for? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. So I think one of the things that I really think that the industry lacks right now, and I've talked to a lot of people about that, or I've tried to at least every time I get a chance to, is there's not a lot of standardization across the industry in terms of whether it's localization specific roles or whether it's uh, tooling or whatever, each company tends to do their, their things their own way. And then additionally, as a kind of related component to that is that localization, because most people don't understand localization, a lot of people just think it's, it's a side task that's not really fitting into any other structure or organization. And I think one of the challenges is that traditionally at companies, when they decide they need languages or they need translations or something, they, they just get whether it's a marketing manager or whether it's someone you know on whatever team, XYZ team, and they start doing things that way, it kind of just puts localization in an ambiguous situation where there's not a lot of like clarity on what they do. And they can be really great resources for the company. You know, if they're allocated the right kind of budgets or the right kind of mentality, like if they're given the the authority to like really execute on international growth initiatives. What we see in the tech space is that a lot of companies and I'm speaking purely from the Silicon Valley kind of mindset right now. They develop with like an America first kind of thing. And I don't mean to make that as a political thing. I mean, more like just that, you know, the mindset is United States is a big market. Let's focus on English audience worldwide. Everyone speaks English, that kind of thing versus the localization kind of mindset where the only thing that we people in international growth can think about from from sunup until sundown is is international things and cultures and how people are looking at our product internationally. If you were to be advising a startup right now on how to be incorporating this idea of global by design into the product, what would be some of the advice that you would give them? Yeah, I think the thing that they really need to focus on is expecting to be successful in languages that are outside of their native language of the app. They need to think about this from the beginning, because what ends up happening with a lot of companies is that they focus on one or two markets, which in the startup world, a lot of investors and, and stuff would you know, say, focus on the one market, get your traction, and then build out from there. 
And that is a trajectory that most people follow. But what ends up happening with a lot of companies is that they they focus so much on one market in one language that over time, whenever they do become successful, they actually have to spend a significant amount of their roadmap and energy and resources trying to make the product internationalized so that they can localize the product, which slows them down. It pushes them back on their deadlines and it makes them not be able to go global as fast as they possibly could if they hadn't done that from the beginning. And so you see that in the case when there's a lot of like head-to-head competitions in the tech space. I'll use the example, and I'm, I'm not sure if this is the best example, but an example that I can think of is like an Uber and Lyft dynamic. And so if you saw from the beginning, Uber was international from almost day one, as, as much as I can remember. I think they went localized pretty quickly. Maybe not exactly day one, but like in the early days of Uber, they started having new languages. They started going to new countries. That did hurt them in some ways because there was a lot of regulation issues that came back to become challenges for them. However, Lyft, on the other hand, stayed in one market in the in the US mostly. I don't even know if they've expanded yet, but I think it was last year when they started offering Spanish in the app. And that was the first language that they started to offer outside of English. And it took them much longer. And now if you go around the world and you stop in any market that had or has Uber currently, it's become synonymous with ride sharing. Uber is that name. It's the it's the Kleenex of ride sharing. And so if you think about it that way and then Lyft and you try to explain Lyft, you have to be like, oh, it's Lyft. It's like Uber, you know, and it's like, you know, something like that. And so you think about this and it's a competitive thing. So one of the things with that, too, is that we have this really simplified and generalized look at the world. And what a lot of people think is that the United States is an English market or the UK is an English market or France is a French speaking market. But thanks to, I guess, a combination of migrations, globalization, and just the multicultural nature of 2020, that is completely not true. If you really look at the data, if you look at, I mean, you can just drive around any major city in the world pretty much, and you can quickly see that a lot of other languages exist. I mean, I I think this is accurate. I did hear this. It's kind of a thing I've heard online, but I don't know how accurate it is, but I think there's about 800 languages spoken within New York City, just as a city. And I think, (laughs) and I lived in New York and I can say that one of the things I loved about it was you get on the train from wherever you lived, you go from point A to point B, it could be a 30 minute ride, but you would see the neighborhoods change as you were on the train because of the people that would get on on and off and your ears would just be buzzing with, oh, that's Russian, that's Chinese, oh, that's Farsi, that's this. And you would just like, you would be hearing all this on the train and you start to think about it and realize like, you know, even if you are an app and you're only based in the United States, at a minimum, you should be offering Spanish almost from the beginning if you if you want to really expand, depending on the type of product that you have. No, I totally agree. And I think the the competitive risk that you're talking about, where if a company sort of takes the approach of, you know, we'll go ahead and dominate locally first and then, you know, go global later, the risk that you bring out is you will maybe lose the opportunity to be known like as that brand internationally. But the other risk is, I mean, there are other companies who have taken that approach and just some local competitor comes in and replicates their entire business model. And then they can't get into that market because it's already owned by like, you know, whatever the local version of the ride sharing company would be. Andy, thanks so much for joining us today. This was a fascinating conversation. Thank you for listening to Globally Speaking, an RWS Moravia production. You can subscribe to Globally Speaking on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or Podbean. Check out other episodes on globallyspeakingradio.com, where you can also find transcripts from every show. 
We'd like to hear your comments, suggestions, and feedback. So don't hesitate to reach out to us by contacting us at info at globallyspeakingradio.com.